So there's a book that's been around for a little while, but it's actually the, an idea that's kind of seeping into the culture because a lot of people have been asking me about this now. Uh, it's a book called The Velvet Rope Economy, How Inequality Became Big Business. It's by Nelson D. Schwartz. He has more than 25 years experience as a business journalist at Fortune and the New York Times, covering everything from energy and economics to inequality in America and business in Europe. He now works as a communications and strategy consultant. Welcome, Nelson D. Schwartz. Thank you for coming on. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh Discussing one of my favorite topics. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, let's start with the, the title. What, what is the Velvet Rope Economy? The Velvet Rope Economy is this idea that there's tiering uh, everywhere and kind of a, a new sort of caste system emerging in American society uh, for us as consumers. So that could be nine different lines to board a plane. It could be paying to skip the line at Disney. It could be a separate entrance at the ball at the ballpark or the football game. Uh, it could be seeing a concierge doctor that enables you to skip the wait for a specialist. Uh, it could be kind of a fast lane for your co for college admissions, which everyone thinks of as you know somewhat meritocratic. I mean, you know, uh, I think there's been some even criminal cases with uh, college admissions, you know, just as I was finishing the book. But all of these areas that at least there was a pretension to fairness, or at least, you, you know, you might get better service if you paid more, but everyone would be treated decently. That began to kind of break down. And we got this emergence of, yeah, of what I call a velvet rope economy, where some people are waiting behind the velvet rope and some are flying by. When, when do you see this as having begun? When did this start happening? You know, you know, in fairness, some people said to me, well, hasn't it always been this way? Well, that is a good question. But, yeah. You know, but the truth is, you know, obviously, you know, first and second class and third class existed on the Titanic more than 100 years ago. And, you know, the rich in, you know, in the Great Depression, you know, in the movies were living lives like in the clouds. And, you know, so obviously class differences aren't new. But I think, you know, beginning in the 1980s, there was a greater comfort with segregating consumers. And you began to see sort of much more defined groupings and barriers. I mean, when I went to uh, Six Flags in New Jersey as a kid in the 1980s, everyone waited on the line. And now you can pay and, and go right to the front. Um, and even uh, in the if you watch the love boat, basically some people had bigger rooms than others on the boat or, you know, portholes. But everybody kind of interacted together uh, if, on cruise ships in the 60s and 70s. Now you have ships within a ship uh, on these on the big cruise lines. You have areas where if you don't have a gold card, you can't go. And, you know, that's new. And same with ball games at Yankee Stadium. I write about this in the book. When I went with my grandfather as a kid in the Bronx in the 70s um, or 80s, you could walk down to the field to get autographs from the players before the game or after the game. You can't do that now. There's uh, the legends section at Yankee Stadium, and the access to the field is only for elite ticket holders. So those are all new examples. And I, like I said, I think it began sort of in the 80s and technology, which we can talk about has only made it easier to kind of 
segregate and tier markets as consumer types like to say. You say, you say inequality became big business. Uh, yeah. I, I, the idea, I guess, is that this is a way that you can give people something for their money to get more money. Is that is that the basic? Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, the margins are better and a lot of the growth has occurred in people who have money to spend and people with more disposable income by definition, have more money to spend. And that's where a lot of the growth has been in the economy, you know, at the high end. And you see that in the market for luxury goods, in the market for luxury homes, uh, you know, just in sort of people who are, you know, dependent, you know, on the stock market for big, you know, gains in, in wealth. They've got the money in this economy and companies want to go after that and segregating their markets and tiering their markets is the way to do it. So, you know, as you said, people are going to say, well, the rich have always been rich and the poor have always been poor. And, yeah. and there's always been this kind of separation. What's the problem? Why is this a problem or is it a problem? Well, you know, I, 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 it, the book is not a Bernie Sanders kind of like screed against <laughs> capitalism. You know, I'm not against capitalism. And I actually, you know, what made the book better is that a lot of companies kind of opened up to me and they, you know, sort of how they thread the needle and how they walk the balance. Um, and companies are sensitive to providing a decent experience to everyone and maybe a sort of a richer experience to some whilst making sure it's still reasonable uh, for everyone. And, you know, that's something I, I write about. I think the issue is for us as a society, when we don't come into contact with one another mm. and we're so you know, segregated from one another by class, and we don't have shared experiences like all going to a baseball game or all playing for the sports team in our public schools. You know, now there are a lot of these travel teams or club teams which are private for certain sports that, you know, it's not like everybody in the town gathers on Friday night for the football game. And, you know, you you lose these common experiences or, you know, you don't even come into contact with the people who, you know, board the plane before you. And you're so mad by the time you get on, you're like the eighth or ninth group to board and there's no room for your luggage. I feel like that contributes to some of the divisiveness and partisanship and just, you know, you know, venom in our public dialogue and debate. So, you know, I feel like it's a loss when there aren't more shared experiences. That That's my concern. You know, it's a funny thing. I mean, this is a conservative site. And on the right, yeah. people people have this kind of a dual uh, feeling about things like this, because on the one hand, uh, we're kind of sick and tired of elites, you know, basically mm -hmm. setting the agenda. The idea of guys from the World Economic Forum flying around on private mm -hmm. jets to tell us how much gas we can put in our Toyotas right. really sticks in our craw. But at the same time, every time we hear words like inequality, we immediately think the government is coming after our our paycheck. We immediately think the government is going to uh, seize on uh, inequality and seize on anger to take more yeah. control of, of the economy. Is that what you're looking for or do you have some other? No, approach? Yeah. no. I mean, I, I do think, you know, government investment in certain areas like, you know, aid for education, um, you know, infrastructure, you know, would help uh, some of these issues. But, you know, even look, I went to the University of Chicago, which is sort of a a undergrad, not 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 for economics, but is a bastion of conservative economic thinking. And, you know, even for conservatives, there are issues of how capitalism and unfettered capitalism affects traditions 
and affect sort of how we live in this sort of society. And I think even conservatives worry that, you know, if we don't have a sense of, of you know, common things in the common wheel, something's lost. And that fairness, fairness and the perception that everyone has a fair shot is important for a functioning society. I think conservatives get that, you know, um, as well as well as liberals. So, so yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, yeah. I think you're you're absolutely right. And obviously, you know, if you have too much uh, too much inequality and it's too flagrant, that causes yeah. anger on both sides. You talk in the book about how this makes socialism uh, appealing to people. That people mm-hmm. think that socialism is going to even things out. I'm always interested in the fact that all of the socialists who are in government are supported by some of the richest corporations in the country. Uh, I'm not sure you can illuminate, you know, you can illuminate why that mm-hmm. happens, uh, but I'm interested in why why socialism becomes appealing to people and why corporations basically sign on to that. Well, I, I don't know if corporations are, are signing on to socialism. I think, you know, when when there's a sense that the that the playing field isn't level and you don't have a fair shot at things you're supposed to have a fair shot like healthcare. By that, I mean, if you have one of these concierge docs and you get to see the heart surgeon and I have these examples in my book, if you get to see the cardiologist in two days and other people are waiting two months or, you know, the oncologist or, you know, these kind of specialists, I think that really offends people's basic sense of fairness. Mm. Um, same and you know even the college or the high school sports things or the college admissions these are you know conservatives sort of see these kind of traditions and activities and kind of social bonds you know social bonds are you know important in, in, in a functioning democracy you know i studied russian history in college and you don't want a situation like you know before the russian revolution where the elites and the ruling classes had no legitimacy and I think we run this risk if the elites in our country and the wealthy are so cut off and they're they're kind of in the fast lane that it runs a real risk of of the rest of the population kind of being embittered. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it can just go too far. Has has COVID and this book came out just before COVID or just as COVID yeah. was, has has that yeah. made it worse or better? You know, I think it's kind of made it worse. Yeah. Um you know, I there were cases where people used connections to get shots ahead of the rest. But I, I think it's an issue because if if you are a knowledge worker, a white collar worker, you know, upper middle class, you can just take your laptop and work from home and, you know, abandon the city, move to the country, you know, all that kind of thing. Uh, if you're a working class person, you're a truck driver, you're a, a restaurant worker, you know, you're in a customer service facing position. You can't do that. You have to show up at work. So you were at risk. And I think, you know, a lot of the restrictions on activity fell harder on working class people yeah. because, you know, they didn't have the option of, of you know, working remotely. And what about, you know, one of the things that you, you say this starts vaguely in the 80s. The 80s is when the Internet really starts to come into its mm-hmm. own. I mean, I feel I feel the internet is is the biggest thing since the inventing invention of the printing press, and I feel that this it's is big. Yeah, it's big. <laughs> so, so what effect has that had on this? You know, I think it makes it much easier to to segment your markets and to do tiering. I mean, just you know the speed at which you can gather data 
And, you know, things like when you call the bank or call the insurance company, they know what kind of customer you are. I mean, they know what your balance is. And if you're a high wealth, you know, high net worth individual, or you have, you know, a more elite account, you'll get service faster and you can do all this kind of stuff. And even since the book came out, Disney, which I write about, you know, Walt Disney kind of envisioned everybody being the same in the park. You know, class differences were something that existed outside this fantasy land. And even since the book came out, Disney has moved in the direction of doing more kind of fast pass type, uh, you know, segmentation and skipping the line. And it's very easy to do with apps and phones and technology and all that much easier than when you, you know, were literally, you know, had two or three lines. It's, it's, you can camouflage, you know, people cutting much more easily with technology. So we're talking about the book, The Velvet Rope Economy, How Inequality Became Big Business by Nelson D. Schwartz. So it seems that all the motivating factors are on the side of inequality. They're on the side of this mm-hmm. kind of uh, privilege. I, I know that, you know, being on the lower end of the privilege scale, I enjoy getting on the plane first. I enjoy being right. in first class, especially because right. I feel that flying has become so much worse for everybody than it used to be. Yeah. I, how do you motivate business without without government becoming just obnoxiously powerful? How do you motivate yeah. business to, I- to bring us together? I, I think there are social, you know, rituals which come into play and, and, and culture. And, you know, in certain parts of the country, you know, I think there's more of an ethic of everyone in it together um, and not being quite so separated. Uh, for example, in, you know, Minnesota uh, and Wisconsin and, you know, those kind of states, there's, you know, more of this sense of maybe it's the Scandinavian roots of, some of the society, but, you know, there's a sense of kind of equality, a sense of populism and equality. And, you know, the Green Bay Packers actually are fan owned Mm, and they've, they've sort of designed the stadium, but, you know, they have boxes and they have more elite areas, but, um, you know, um, I mean, Scandinavia has a socialist tradition. That's why I mentioned it. So I'm not, saying it's, it's socialist in those part of the country in that part of the country but in green bay the stadium when they remodeled it they made sure that like a lot of the regular seats were good ones and not it wasn't such a kind of dystopian you know some people way up in the bleachers and some people enjoying over the top luxury boxes so and you know that's there are examples where the culture kind of influences things uh, I also think, you know, there's companies that have really emphasized more of an egalitarian kind of approach like Southwest. Southwest yeah. doesn't have, you know, first class and, and, and Southwest has done extremely well. I mean, it's one of the only airlines that never went bankrupt and has consistently made profits. So you can do well. I, I, I think the culture informs this as much as the government does. It, you know, it, it- during the uh, Great Recession after 2008, a lot of these businesses, these incredibly big businesses were bailed out by the government. Some of them were forced to be bailed out by the government to take government aid yeah. that they didn't necessarily want. And it did seem it seemed to me that the same people who com- might complain about the welfare state and, and people who are uh, out of work uh, getting government funds were actually taking government funds to keep these tremendous businesses alive. 
I can't help but feel that everything the government touches uh, becomes more unequal. That, uh, for instance, a, a television set, no, the government doesn't give you a television set. One day a TV comes out and it costs $10,000. The next mm. year, that same TV costs 600 bucks. Is there some way that uh, that the government has kind of fed inequality by, you know, by getting involved? Hmm. You know, uh, hmm. uh, that's a tough one. I mean, I think I would say, you know, one issue is when the government intervenes in the market, you can get huge distortions. So let's say the government decided tomorrow to radically increase, uh, you know, aid for education and college students. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see college tuition go up a lot. You know, so I mean, I think that's the danger. Um, and I think, you know, um, if we went to a nationalized healthcare service, you'd probably have even more demand for elite concierge care, you know. So, though, I mean, everything cuts both ways, I think, you know, when the government intervenes. Doesn't mean there's not a place for, for government, but uh, I think that's a danger that sometimes people don't recognize when they're, you know, planning these kind of uh, programs. Yeah, yeah, good point. The Velvet Rope Economy, How Inequality Became Big Business by Nelson D. Schwartz, a really interesting uh, subject and and a very fair take on it. I really appreciate your coming on. Yeah, no, it's nice talking to you. I hope you come back. Great. Good luck. Please uh, keep in touch and happy to come on anytime. Thanks very much. (laughs) 